Let me open with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, I thank you just for gathering your, your body here today, this morning, to, to come and worship you, to lift you up, to exalt the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, your Son, your beloved Son, divine Son of God. Father, we thank you for your word that we have, and we can even come and openly talk about it, look at it, examine it, and preach it, and, and understand it, Father, we, we don't fear for our lives as we publicly gather together. I'm thankful for that. Father, I think of so many places in the world where that is not the case. Father, I pray your continued grace and blessing upon those people who meet in secret on the Lord's day for one reason, to honor you, to worship you, and to come underneath your word. Father, I thank you for the time that we have this morning. Would you bless it? Would you bless it, Father? In Jesus' name, amen. We are in Romans chapter 1, looking at verses 1 through 6. So if you, if you have a Bible, maybe you could turn to that section of God's Word. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. In your New Testament, that's the order. If you don't have a Bible, I would encourage you to grab one of those blue Bibles located underneath the seats around you and flip open to page 939. That will bring you to this section. We are in part, part two of a message that we started. I started last week called Paul's Precious Message. So this is part two. There will be a part three, maybe a part four, but I doubt it. I'm just trying to get it all done in three parts. And I titled this Paul's Precious Message. I talked about this last week, you know, Gollum. If you guys are Lord of the Ring fans, you remember that that special ring, he called it his precious. My mother-in-law, who's also a Lord of the Rings fan, has a diamond necklace that she calls her precious, right? And it is precious because it's highly valuable and expensive. But the idea of precious means, we were talking about this, it just means highly valued or very much loved. That's what the word means. Or considered to be of great importance, okay? Something very dear to that person. So just like Gollum with the ring or my mother-in-law with her diamond necklace, for Paul, it was the gospel. It was the gospel that was precious to him. Highly valued, very important. And, and beloved, as I continue to say, that should be the case for us as well. The gospel should be that precious message. Not a message that we, we think about once in a while, or not a message that's just for our entrance into the kingdom of God or being saved, but a message that occupies our mind and our heart on a regular basis. A message that we cherish. A message that we want to know better. A message that we want to share with others because it's precious. Now what we find in these first six verses is really a summary then of, of Paul's precious message or the gospel of God, the gospel of God. So let's look at the text together. We'll read through it, the six verses, and then we'll get into the outline. Verse 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. 
Inside of your bulletins on the left-hand side, there is an outline that you can use to follow along. This morning, we're just going to continue to consider six truths. We'll just be looking at two more this morning. We've looked at, we looked at one last week. We'll look at the next three next week. We're going to con- continue to consider six truths about the gospel so that we might truly treasure it, that is the gospel, God's good message, and be motivated to proclaim it just as the Apostle Paul did. That's, that's the end goal. That's the idea. That's why we're spending some time in the text so we can see the glories of this message and we might get excited about that message in our own personal lives and share that message with others. Last week, the three points, last week we looked at the gospel is attributed to God. This week we will see the gospel is affirmed by the Holy Scriptures and next the gospel is about God's Son, Jesus Christ the Lord. Just a very quick review. The gospel is attributed to God. Basically that, that means it is not man's message. Okay? It is not man's message, but it originated with God. Man didn't make this up. It isn't his idea. I mean, as Thomas was saying, who in the world would think about sacrificing their own son to save a bunch of rebellious, wretched sinners who rejected him, who spit in his face? Who would think of that? Certainly not man. But God did. But God did. The kind of love that would take, beloved, it's just it's it's hard to even grasp. It's not it's not man's message. It's a it's a message, beloved, of good news to this messed up and lost world. And since it is God's good message to us, it makes it the most important, most meaningful, and most valuable message that any of us, any one of us, could hear, study, think about, meditate on, and share with others. Okay? This is not Jeremy's message. This is not the president's message. This is not some Hollywood person's message, no American Idol's message, none of that. This is the message of God, a good message to a lost world, a hurting world, beloved, who need this message. And they don't need it. Let me re-say this. It's not just them that need it. Christians need this message. They need this message on a regular basis. They need to hear it. They need to think on it. They need to know it. Okay? And I'll I'll say that many, many times as we move through Romans 16 over the next 20 years. So, the second point, the gospel is affirmed by the Holy Scriptures. That's what we're going to look at this morning. Here's what I mean by that. Affirm. What do I mean? I mean that support for and confirmation of the gospel of God or God's good message that Paul proclaimed is found in the oldest and largest part of the Bible called the Old Testament. That's what I mean by that. I'm going to show you this in a second. So support for and confirmation of the gospel of God that Paul proclaimed is found in the oldest and largest part of the Bible that many of you are holding on your laps called the Old Testament. Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. Looking back at the text, Paul says, Paul, he identifies himself a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, verse 2, which he promised, that is God, beforehand, in the past, through his, God's, prophets, in the Holy Scriptures. Holy Scriptures. So what we have here is at the end of verse 1, after Paul mentioned the gospel, and we talked about this, that he was set apart for, 
or divinely chosen, okay, because that's what's going on. He was set apart, divinely chosen by God, by Christ, to receive this gospel, preserve this gospel, defend this gospel, proclaim this gospel. He paused now, after he says that, to make it clear to his readers that the gospel that he would go on to explain in great detail in the rest of Romans, in those 16 chapters, was not some message that just came out of nowhere. Okay? Nor was it recently invented by men or made up by Paul even. Paul didn't make this up. But rather it was promised the gospel of God long ago by God through his prophets and recorded in the Holy Scriptures. Now maybe you already know this, but in case you don't, the phrase Holy Scriptures in Romans 1-2, do you see it there in your text, Holy Scriptures? It's a reference by Paul to the established and recognized scriptures of Paul's day, or what we now refer to as the Old Testament. Okay, so I just want to make sure we're clear about this. At the time Romans was written, which is around A.D. 56, many of the New Testament books, okay, we have two testaments. We have the Old, 39 books, and the New, 27 books, comply put together into one book we call the Bible. At the time that Romans was written, many of the New Testament books had not been written. Okay? The last one was the book of Revelation. It was written around 95 AD. 95 AD. When was Romans written? 56. That was a test, and you failed miserably. So, don't worry, there'll be more opportunities to get a gold star. 56 A.D., Revelation, written around 95. And it wasn't until sometime later that the 27 books were organized, okay, sometime later after the writing of Romans, they were organized into official, an official collection formally recognized by the church as Holy Scripture and added to the books of the Old Testament. And that's important. You've got to know that just so that we understand when he says Holy Scripture... He's not referring yet to the collection of the books called the New Testament. He is primarily referring to the Old Testament, which was the scripture that was recognized in that day and gathered together. So, to be clear, when you see other references in Romans, like Romans 4.3 or 9.17 or 10.11 or 11.2 or 15.4, those passages where he refers to the scriptures, he's referring to the Old Testament. This will make, I'm making a point here and I'll make it at the end so this will make sense. So remember that. It also is helpful sometimes when you read about scriptures being referred to in the Gospels, when Jesus refers to the scriptures. At that point, he's not referring to Ephesians or Galatians or Revelation. He's not referring to those books. He's referring to the Old Testament because those are the scriptures that were gathered together at that time and recognized as God's holy word. It would be sometime later that the New Testament would also join those books as Holy Scripture, okay? Now, Paul made his point that the gospel he proclaimed was not some new message, but was really God's good message promised beforehand, right? That's what it says in the text. Promised beforehand in the past. He did this by using passages from the Old Testament scriptures in Romans a total of 61 times. 61 times Paul will quote from the Old Testament 
to prove his point that this gospel that he's proclaiming is not something new, not something he made up, not an invention of man, but is something that God promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, the Old Testament. So, for instance, you don't have to memorize this, but just listen. He quotes from Genesis five times in Romans, Exodus four times, Leviticus twice, Deuteronomy five, 1 Kings twice, Psalms 15, Proverbs twice, Isaiah 19 times, Ezekiel once, Hosea twice, Joel once, Nahum once, Habakkuk once, Malachi once. 61 times from the Old Testament. In addition to all these direct quotes from the Old Testament, he makes numerous indirect references to the Old Testament as well. All of these references prove the point that the gospel Paul proclaimed was affirmed long ago by God through his holy prophets. Okay? That's what I want you to see there. You don't just read over that and go, okay, that's significant what he's saying. It's significant. In fact, one of the verses that many Christians are familiar with in Romans happens to be Romans 10.13. How many of you are familiar with this passage? For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Any of you know that passage? Have you heard it before? You've quoted it to someone? For everyone, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's in the New Testament in Romans. But many may not know that that's actually a quote from Joel. Joel chapter 2, verse 32. Joel's an Old Testament prophet, Old Testament book, written by the prophet Joel around 800 B.C., 800 years prior to the coming of Christ. Okay? Now, the next point in the outline, I'm not moving out of this one. I'm just going to tell you. The next one is the gospel is about God's son. We're going to look at that in a second. That's what the gospel is all about. It's about God's son, specifically Jesus Christ, the Lord. That's who the gospel is about. And before we look at that in detail, what I want to do now is show you some passages that connect that point that the gospel is all about God's Son, Jesus Christ the Lord, with the point we just looked at, that the gospel was promised beforehand, long before, by God through his prophets in the Old Testament, the Holy Scriptures. So I want to show you that. I want to show you the connection. In Acts 8, we are told about an encounter between a follower of Jesus Christ named Philip, called Philip the Evangelist in one place, Philip, and an unnamed Ethiopian eunuch who had gone to Jerusalem to worship God. That's the story. He's going to Jerusalem. He's traveling to Jerusalem from Ethiopia to worship God. Now he's returning from that worship back to his land. Philip was directed by God to go and talk and speak with or encounter this Ethiopian eunuch. We're going to pick up the story at the end of verse 27 in the book of Acts, chapter 8, verse 27 through 35. I'm going to show you the connection between promise long ago in the Old Testament and the gospel is all about Jesus Christ. Beginning at the end of verse 27, it says, He had come to Jerusalem, it's a reference to the Ethiopian eunuch, to worship, just as I had told you, and he was returning seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. Okay, he was reading the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah is a book in the Old Testament. Isaiah is an Old Testament prophet. 
he was reading from the holy scriptures of the day. Okay? You got with me so far? The 39 books of the Old Testament. Beginning in 29, and the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him in his chariot. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading, see the word scripture? Holy Scripture, that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shear is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. There's the passage. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom I ask you? Does the prophet, Isaiah, say this about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news, the gospel about who? Jesus. This Old Testament passage, Philip looks at this Old Testament passage and says, Here it is, written beforehand by God's holy prophets, the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is Jesus. It's the good news about Jesus, beginning here, and then he would go through other scripture passages, I am sure. Now, Philip, as I said, he he preached the good news about Jesus, and he did that, beloved, through the Old Testament scriptures. Now, let's look at one more passage. On the day of Jesus' resurrection, Jesus appeared. Many of you probably know this story, but again, this is important to link these things together with Romans 1. So you see the connections. Jesus appeared to two of his disciples, okay? But they were prevented from knowing it was Jesus. So Jesus is resurrected. Remember, he died, and now he's resurrected. He appears to them. They're on the road to a town called Emmaus. So they call it the road to Emmaus. He appears to these two disciples... But they don't know it's Jesus, not yet. Now, these disciples were sad and depressed and discouraged. Why? They were disciples or followers of Jesus Christ. And Jesus had just been executed. He'd just been killed. Now, earlier in the day, it was reported to them that Jesus was seen alive. But they didn't even know what to do with that, and they didn't really believe it. This is why they're so discouraged. As far as they were concerned, they assumed Jesus was dead. I mean, resurrected? Come on. We saw what happened to him. Whipped and beaten, the flesh removed from his body, crucified and put into a tomb. The man's dead. So in their minds, all is lost because they hope that this Jesus was the Messiah. Now, Messiah is the same thing as Christ in the New Testament. The Messiah or Christ. Those, you can use those terms. They speak of the same thing, which is the promised one of the Old Testament who would eventually come being sent by God and redeem the nation of Israel. 
Okay? So here you are. We have these disciples. These are Jewish men. They believe Jesus is the one. They believe he's the Messiah. They believe he's going to redeem them, set them free, become their king, and lead them out from underneath the bondage of Rome. And he's dead. So he apparently cannot be the one. That's where we are in the story. Now we'll pick up the story at Luke 24, 25. By the way, they're talking. Jesus is with them. They don't know it's Jesus. And they're kind of telling him the whole situation. You know, really? Because he says, what are you guys talking about? And he goes, are you kidding me? Are you the only one who hasn't heard the story? We believe this man was, was the one who would redeem Israel, but he's dead. They were brokenhearted, beloved. And this is how Jesus, this is Jesus, how he speaks to his, his disciples, right? Verse 25, into verse 25. Oh, foolish ones. <laughs> He's like, oh, that's too bad. No, oh, foolish ones. Maybe he said it like this. Oh, foolish ones. That would be more comforting, I think. Certainly he may have done that. And slow of heart, now get this, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Again, when he's talking about prophets, he's talking about the scriptures. Was it not necessary that the Christ, the Messiah, should suffer these things? What things? Death. Crucifixion even. That he should suffer these things and enter into his glory. That was the question. And then look at this, verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, I'll talk about that in a second, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, Old Testament, the things concerning himself. You see that? The Old Testament, if they could have seen it, pointed to, described the gospel of God, the person of Jesus Christ. Now, the phrase Moses and all the prophets that he uses here, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, just so you know, that's just another way of referring to the Old Testament. That was a shorthand way of talking about the prophets, the writings, and the law. Moses, the prophets, the writings. They would sometimes just say Moses and the prophets. But it's just another way of saying the Old Testament. Beginning with the Old Testament, he showed to them him in there. Pretty cool, huh? Those scriptures spoke about him. They spoke about the long-anticipated one, the crucified and resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, the one whom the gospel of God is all about, the gospel which God promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Are you with me? Okay. Now, based on what we've just looked at, we can draw this conclusion. That in order to fully know and understand the gospel of God, okay, the good news of God, the message of Jesus, you must then know and understand the scriptures, which, by the way, includes 39 books that we identify as the Old Testament. That's the conclusion you can draw. Listen, when Jesus described himself and the gospel of God to his disciples, he didn't have the New Testament. It hadn't been written. 
when the eunuch was reading from Isaiah, Philip explained to him from Isaiah and the rest of the scriptures, Jesus, the gospel of God. This is why, beloved, as a church here, we continually emphasize that you regularly read through the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation. We have on the sides there a plan that if you give 15 minutes a day, you can read through the entire word of God in one year. If the Lord lets you live long enough, you could have read through the the entire word of God, all the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation multiple times, okay? Multiple times. We put Bibles out. We talk about the Bible. We encourage you to read through the Bible. We have study Bibles. All of that is because we know that we need to read the entire word of God, the good message of God, the gospel of God, the incredible message of a salvation and eternal life for unrighteous, guilty sinners through the sinless and righteous Savior, Jesus Christ the Lord, is a message, hear me now, is a message that has been intentionally woven by God into the pages of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. Not just from Matthew to Revelation. From Genesis to Revelation. The Gospel of God. Woven in there divinely by God. It is a message, beloved, that you and I need to hear over and over and over again. And we need to explore and understand all the wonders and details of it so that we might fully benefit from it. That we might be totally transformed by it for God's glory and our good. Beloved, we need to be, as some people refer to, people of the book. That would be a good identification for us. You're a Christian? Yeah, I'm a Christian. Are you a person of the book? Are we people of the book? I'm talking about the Bible. And then we need to see Bible reading not as a miserable duty. (laughs) Like, oh, I got to do my Bible reading or I'm not a good Christian. Or as a way to merit favor with God. If I do my Bible reading for a week, then God will like me more. No, no. Your position with God is through Jesus Christ, okay? Your acceptance with God is through Jesus Christ. But God now has given you his word, preserved it. Men have spilled their blood for us to have it. You understand in many places, this is still outlawed. It's outlawed, beloved. You're caught with it. You could do jail time. So here we have the word of God. We have it. It's a privilege. We need to see it that way, that in it, from Genesis to Revelation, is contained the great gospel of God, the good news of Jesus Christ. It's a treasure chest. See, we begin to see the Bible differently. Now, generally speaking, though, too many Christians, in my opinion, are biblically illiterate. Do you know what I mean by that? That means they're uneducated in the scriptures. Now, I'm not, I'm not talking so much about the newborn Christian who just knows a little bit and they know enough to have gotten saved. They know enough about Jesus Christ to have gotten saved. But they've never read through the Bible. They don't, even, they don't know how many books are in the Old Testament or how many are in the New. They, they thought it was just all one book. 
I'm not talking about that person. I'm talking about the Christian who's been a Christian for some time. And even in that case, in many cases, they are still biblically illiterate, beloved. Okay? They know very little of the word of God. And this, again, is not designed to give anybody a guilt trip. It's just to call attention to the, to the bad situation. The gospel of God put in through Genesis to Revelation, and they know very little of the word of God. They may have never even cracked open the Old Testament. Because someone told them, that's not for you, you know. You just read the New Testament. Boy, that's terrible advice. So as a result, here it is, as a result of knowing very little of the word of God or being biblically illiterate, that means that the gospel of God, their knowledge of it, okay? Because that's what this means. Their knowledge of the gospel of God, therefore, is limited, right? They know John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have the everlasting life. Yes, oh, that is good, and that is great, and you should know that. But there's more. There's more than John 3.16. That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. And as a result of their minimal knowledge of the gospel of God, because they are biblically illiterate, they don't devote themselves to the Bible like they devote themselves to football, or they devote themselves to video games, or they devote themselves to their jobs, or they even devote themselves to their families, or whatever else you can bring up. They don't devote themselves like that to the word of God. They don't do it. And it's a tragedy, beloved. And I would just urge you, plead with you to reconsider that, to reprioritize your life, to think differently about the word of God and see it as the treasure chest it is and in it contains the gospel of God. And beloved, if you don't know the gospel of God in all its fullness, okay, if you're not familiar with it, all you have is a little piece of it, then your maturity, your growth in Christ is limited. Uh, That's how it works, guys. You can come to church every Sunday for the next 10 years. But if this is, and if you did it for 10 years, I mean, we're not going to get through the whole Bible, though. There's, you know, the way I preach, no way. We'll barely make it through Romans. But if, if you could be reading, if that's all you did, though, it wouldn't be enough. You would still be limited. You on your own need to be reading the scriptures. And so, you know, we set up these Bible reading plans. You know why they do it in a year? You don't have to take a year to read the scriptures, by the way. You can read through the entire... It's just a book, guys. People get books all the time, like that stupid series. There's so many. I, maybe I shouldn't say stupid because then someone will be offended. There's so many, you know, book series out there that people get all excited about. And they read through not one, not two, not three, not four volumes. Five volumes. I can't wait for the next book to come out. And not a single one of them contain the gospel of God. Hello. Come on. Keeping it real. See the word of God for what it is, beloved. It's a treasure chest. And when we see it that way, when we become familiar with it, when we begin to understand it, yeah, sometimes it's difficult to understand. That's why we recommend study Bibles. That's why we recommend other sources. That's why we say ask questions. Talk. Get to know the word of God. If it challenges you, good. If you don't understand it, good. But don't stop there. Don't turn it away. Go, oh, that was too difficult. I'm not going to read it. Read it. Because in it, Contained within it is the gospel of God. And, and as you become more familiar with the gospel of God, all of it, and all of its wonder, which includes 
the kingdom of God. We don't have time to talk about that. But that's glorious. That's wonderful and beautiful. Oh, my. When you get to get familiar with that, guess what happens? You will be motivated and you will find the ability to increasingly overcome your sin. Ah. And live for God. You want to know why people struggle with their sin? Oh, we're always going to struggle, beloved. But you know why they give in to it? Don't even struggle sometimes? Their view and understanding the gospel is contained in John 3.16 and that's it. Okay? Shouldn't be that way. All right. Moving, wow, way over time, but we're good. Number three, the gospel is about God's son, Jesus Christ the Lord. The gospel is about God's son, Jesus Christ the Lord. Go back to the text. Looking at Romans 1, we'll read through it again and look at the bold that pops up here in a second. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel of God. Okay, see that gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, verse 3, concerning his son, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. You could rightly take those passages, one through four, and make the following statement, okay? The gospel of God, which we see at the end of verse 1, is the good message or news of God concerning his son. Beginning verse 3. Who is Jesus Christ the Lord? End of verse 4. Gospel of God, the good news of God, is concerning his son who is Jesus Christ the Lord. Beloved, the gospel is a good message that revolves around and is focused on a particular person. Right? Some say that weddings are all about the bride. And I think that's true. I really do. I agree with that statement. Paul says the gospel is all about Jesus Christ. It's all about Jesus Christ. One writer says this, the whole gospel, all of it, is contained in Christ. Therefore, to move even a step from Christ means to withdraw oneself. From the gospel. Okay? You move away from Christ, you have moved away from the gospel. Because contained in Christ is the gospel. To say it very simply, the good news of God is Jesus Christ our Lord. Okay? The good news of God, the good message of God, the gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ our Lord. And it includes who he is, okay? His identity, what he has done. And you know what? What he will do. What he will do. It includes all of those things, beloved. About this one, God's son, Paul makes two different statements. He says this. It's in the text. He just makes two different statements about the one whom the gospel is all about. He says this. He was descended from David according to the flesh. And number two, he was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Two statements about this one that the gospel is all about. Jesus Christ the Lord. Okay, so Paul, just follow with me now as we work through that. Paul just got through stating that the gospel was promised beforehand by God through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, which is the Old Testament, right? Yes? 
Yes, excellent. Then Paul says that the gospel is about God's son, who Paul identifies in verse 4 as Jesus Christ. That's a title. That's not his last name. That's his title. Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Christ. It's a significant one. The Lord. That's another title. Jesus the Christ, the Lord. Next in verse 3, he points out that Jesus, according to the flesh. What is that? According to the flesh. This is what I believe that is. He's saying, as a human being, as a human being, according to the flesh. He uses the exact same phrase in Romans 9, verse 5. You can look at that later. When he's talking about that he came from Israel. This one, Jesus, according to the flesh, as a human being, descended from King David or was born into his family tree. You guys know what a family tree is? In this case, it's a royal line because David was a king. It's a royal line, a royal family tree. So he's saying he was born into that royal family tree. Now, why would Paul point that out? Why does Paul identify Jesus in this way? Why is it a big deal? Because the Messiah or Christ, the great deliverer and righteous king that God promised beforehand through his prophets to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament was a person who would be a descendant of King David. They had to be. And guess what? Jesus was. Jesus was a descendant. If Jesus was not a descendant of David, then he could not have been the special one who was promised by God long ago through his prophets. It's important. One writer says, or you you could read this in John chapter 7, verse 42, has not the scripture said... John 7, 42, has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David? When he says scripture there, beloved, again, they're referring to the Old Testament. Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes, this one, this Messiah, he'll come from the offspring or as a descendant of David. And he comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was. By the way, where was Jesus born? Yeah, Bethlehem. How do we know that? Well, Luke 2. Look at Luke 2. You can find out. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Interesting thing. He's often referred to as Jesus the Nazarene or the, Naz- the Nazarene, right? Because he grew up in Galilee in Nazareth. That's where he grew up. But through the providence of God, when you read Luke 2, he came back and was born in Bethlehem. I wonder why that happened. Because the Old Testament prophecies had to be fulfilled just as God had declared them. Now, By the way, here's a question. David, okay? He's a descendant of David. This is no small figure in the scriptures. Anybody want to take a a guess, a little shout out at how many times David's name appears in the Old Testament? Anybody want to take a shout out? Don't worry. We're all friends here, huh? Don't. A thousand. Higher, lower, you know, I've done that before. I'm good at it. Higher or lower? Who says higher? Who says lower? It's 1,077. Yes. You think he's not important? Now, beloved, the Old Testament contains his name 1,077 times. And if you haven't read through it, then you don't know the weight 
of what it means for Jesus to be a descendant of David. You don't know. You don't really know. And your view and understanding of the gospel is limited by that to some degree. How about this? When is the first time? You cannot answer, Thomas. When is the first time that David's name appears in the Old Testament? What, what book? Anybody know that? Anybody know? Huh? Huh? First Kings? First Samuel? The, did you guess? I got a gift for you right here. Look at that. Look at that. All right. Ruth. That's right. Now, First Samuel is right after Ruth. Right at the end of Ruth. David's name appears, I think, a couple times. And then we get into David, 1 Samuel. That's where you really start to learn about David, by the way. 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings. Anyway. All right. Know the word of God, beloved. Know it. Know it. It'll rock your world for the better. So let's look at Acts chapter 2, verse 22. This is a sermon. I want to show you something. I'm connecting some of these pieces together that he is descended from David, and we're going to talk about the resurrection and all that. Uh, you can turn, I actually want you to turn there if you would, because it's a long passage. Page 910 in those blue Bibles. And I'm going to read through this fairly quickly. Uh, beginning in verse 22, Acts 2, verse 22. Men of Israel, this is the Apostle Peter. He's, he's proclaiming this message to the men of Israel. He says, men of Israel, Apostle Peter speaking. Hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, I already told you what that's about. He grew up in in Nazareth in Galilee. A man attested to you, affirmed to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. There's no denying this. We all know he did these things. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. 24, God raised him up. Loosing the pangs of death. Because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Alright, verse 25. Here we go. By the way, David's name shows up 60 times in the New Testament. For David says, concerning him. Concerning who? Concerning Jesus. And now he's going to quote from Psalm 16. I saw the Lord. This is David speaking. I saw the Lord always before me. For he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced and my flesh also will dwell in hope. Verse 27. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Stop right there. That's the quote. All right. Peter is talking to the Jewish people. And he's saying, this one you crucified, that was the Messiah. And he's going to show it to him. So he goes back to David, who is honored and revered among the Jewish people, the great King David. And he says, listen to what David said. And he quotes Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11. And now he says in verse 29, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Okay, this is all Peter's saying. We know where David is buried, and he's still there. So then he says, Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne. 
You want to see that promise? You turn to 2 Samuel 7. Knowing that, he, David, foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. In other words, Peter says this was a prophecy. Not about David so much, but about the descendant of David, the great one, the Christ. And he says that he was not abandoned to Hades or the grave, nor did his flesh see corruption or decay. So, and then he says, verse 32, this Jesus, just in case you weren't sure, God raised up and of that we are all witnesses. So what he's saying is, guys, this passage in Psalm, Psalm 16, where David talks about the Holy One not seeing corruption, about the fact that his soul would not be abandoned to the grave. It couldn't have been about David, because David is right there in the grave. We all know that. It is about this one looking forward. He saw the Christ, the one that has been promised in the Old Testament. And he was speaking about him because he has been risen. That's what he's saying. See, he's drawn all these together. And then he says in verse 33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. He's referring to Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Verse 34, for David did not, okay, here we go again, for David did not ascend into the heavens as Christ did. Okay, he ascended. He said, bye guys, don't worry, I'm coming back, don't fret, but I'm going to be with my father, I'm going to prepare a place for you, I'll be back, and as I've gone, I will come again. David didn't do that, but he himself said, okay, says, and now he's going to quote Psalm 110 verse 1, the Lord said to my Lord, so David sees something, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know. So that's the quote. So he sees this. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. It's not as if God has a right hand, but it's a place of authority. He says, you ascend to me. Sit here until I make all of your enemies your footstool. Until I bury them. So then he says in verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know. Based on that. For certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. That's what you should know. He is Lord and Christ. All right. Now this last quote. I'm going to try to tie this together. This last quote from the Old Testament that Peter used. Psalm 110.1. It's a messianic psalm. It just means that it's a psalm that talks about the Messiah or the Christ. And it talks about his future rule and reign. Okay? You ascend here to my right hand until I make all of your enemies a footstool. Beloved, that is the future. Christ will crush down every single one who rejects him. Who rebels against him. Who does not, refuses to receive him as Lord and Savior. As the Christ. He's going to crush them. Because it's rebellion. That's what it is. It's rebellion. He didn't say, hey, would you please repent and turn to me and trust me? He said, do it. To not do it is to say, no. That's rebellion. That places you in a position as an enemy of Christ. Pretty serious. So, this last quote here, Psalm 110, verse 1, that Peter uses, 
proving the fact that this Jesus is the Christ, is the Lord, Jesus used it too. Now, this is cool. I want to show you this. In Matthew chapter 22, verse 41, it says, While the Pharisees, so this is during Jesus' three-year ministry, three-and-a-half-year ministry on earth, remember the Pharisees are part of the religious leadership who hate Jesus, who are looking to destroy him. He says, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. And he said this, hey, guys, what do you think about the Christ? This is the one, the promised one, the Messiah. What do you think? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. I mean, we got the answer. We know that. (laughs) We know we answered Jesus' question. And by that, they mean a descendant of David, not like a son like you and I think like first the son that David's long gone. They knew David's dead. This would be a descendant of David. It's the same way they referred to it the same way, the son of David. So they go, we know he has to be a descendant of David. So he said to them this, how is it then that David in the spirit, and by that, if you look at Mark 12, 36, he says in the Holy Spirit. So what he's saying is David said this through the Holy Spirit. So we know it's true and accurate. That's what Jesus is saying. He just, he just right there. He's going to nail him right now. He says, okay, Explain this to me. How is it then that David, in the Spirit, in the Holy Spirit, calls him Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at your right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Now let me explain to you what's going on. What is Jesus getting at? Well, he's challenging them to think about David's statement here in in Psalm 110, because if the future promised Christ that David was referring to in the psalm, the Lord said to my Lord, God said to my God, is only a human descendant of David, son of David, then it would be inappropriate for David to give him the title of Lord, because Lord was a title of deity. It was a title of God for God. But if the promised descendant of David is also the unique and only divine son of God, then Lord was the only way for David to rightly refer to him. It was the only way he could rightly refer to this one, one that would be his descendant. He would have to call him Lord. The Christ promised by God beforehand in the whole old testament would not just be the human son of david but he would also be the divine son of god all right so now this brings me all the way back okay romans chapter 1 verse 4 so he, Dave, paul's already talked about the fact according to the flesh he is a descendant of david but let me tell you there's more to him than that there's more to him than that he's a descendant of david there is no doubt and in order to be the christ he must be a descendant of david And he says in chapter 1, verse 4, and he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, quickly, there is some debate about this passage among Bible commentators. One of the issues, don't don't get too caught up in this in your head, it's okay, but one of the issues is how do you interpret the Spirit of holiness? How do you understand what that is? Some say it's a reference to the Holy Spirit. Others suggest that it's a reference to Jesus's inner spirit, which is holy and divine, a fact that was manifested or demonstrated 
in his life by his sinless and righteous life. I'm just going to tell you right now, I lean toward that. I lean toward the latter. I don't think this is a reference to the Holy Spirit because I think Paul is making a contrast in verses 3 and 4. Let me tell you what I mean. Here's the contrast. On one hand, according to the flesh or according to his human nature, as a human being, he is the descendant of David, which is very important. You know, that might just go right by us, but if we really knew the Old Testament, we would know how big that statement is. He is a descendant of David, the one whom the gospel of God is all about, the one that we find in the Old Testament scriptures. So that's on one hand. But on the other hand, according to the spirit of holiness or according to his divine nature, he is not just a human being, but in addition to that, he is the almighty son of God. God in the flesh. And that was declared or affirmed by his resurrection from the dead. I think, I I believe that is what Paul is communicating. Now, someone might ask, how does the resurrection of Jesus affirm his status or, or his identity as the Son of God? How does it prove that? Well, we could probably say several things about that, but let, let me just have you think about this. We are told in Acts 2, we just read it, that someone raised Jesus from the dead. Who was it? A magician? Who was it? It's God. God did it. And in many other places besides Acts 2, we're told that God raised Jesus from the dead. You know what else we know? We know Jesus claimed on more than one occasion to be the very Son of God. Not just, not just a small S, like, it, you know, we're all the sons of God. No, no, no. A unique, divine Son of God. I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. They understood what he was saying. That's why they tried to stone him. He was claiming to be divine. He said God was his Father. And oh, by the way, he also said... You want a sign? You want to know that I am who I say I am? I'm going to rise three days later. That's in John 2, verses 13 through 22, when the people said, Hey, what is your sign? Give us, what is your sign that you have the authority that you talk like this, calling the temple your father's house? He says, I'll tell you, tear this temple down, and three days later I'll rise it up again. And they thought he was talking about the temple, the building. They're like, No way. It took years and years to build that. No one can build it again in three days. And the scripture tells us he was talking about his body. Now, if he had not been risen from the dead, beloved, then Jesus still would have been a descendant of David. Okay? There's nothing that's going to change that. He was born in the line, in the royal line. But clearly he would have been nothing more. Not the Christ, not the Son of God. There were other descendants of David before him, but none of them were the Christ and certainly not the Son of God. In fact... What he would have been was either a crazy man or a liar. Because he was making some claims that he was the son of God and that he was the Christ. But having been risen by God not only points out that he is the Christ promised by the prophets. As, as we saw there spoken about by David that his body would not undergo decay. That he would not be left in the grave. But also it proves that he is the Lord, the divine son of God, just as Jesus claimed. Why? Because it's ridiculous to think that God would raise an imposter from the dead. That's what you would have to believe. That God raised an imposter. And was validating by that act that everything Jesus said about himself and his relationship to the father was true. 
If he wasn't the son of God, beloved, he'd still be in the grave. That's the bottom line. And the fact that he is not in the grave demonstrates the reality that he is who he said he was and is. The resurrected, glorified, exalted son of God, Messiah, Christ, and Lord. Jesus Christ, the Lord, is the son of David. He is the son of David. He is the son of David. I'm wrapping up now, and he is the son of God, the one whom the gospel or God's good news is all about. And it is this that makes God's good message so valuable and important and worthy of devoting our lives to, beloved. Come on now. Come on now. Give it to me. Just Give me just a little bit of your focus right now. The fact that the gospel, hey, it's not about how to build race cars. It's not a message about that or how to build a cool house or how to become rich and famous. It's not about how to get my health back. It's not about any of those things. It is about Jesus, the Christ, the Lord. That's what it's about. That's what elevates it to the greatest message you and I should be more than familiar with, but saturated with, knowing every detail of. You're not going to learn that in a day or two. That's going to take a life of devotion. But it begins by devoting yourself to it. And it's a message that we should want to share because it is the greatest message in the world. Why can I say that? Because it is a message about Jesus, not some man Name Jesus, but Jesus the Christ, the anointed king, the Messiah, Lord, God in the flesh. That's the message we have. And if it stays in this building, what? The good news of Jesus Christ was so important to Paul that even suffering and imprisonment could not deter him from preaching the gospel. Let me show you this passage, 2 Timothy 2, 8 through 9. This is the last letter that Paul wrote before he was executed. You know why he was executed? Because he was a Christian, because he was proclaiming his faith. Here's his, they call it his last will and testament. These are his final words to, his, to, his, to Timothy, a young man who he had, uh, we believe, led to Christ and has been mentoring And so here it is, or or at least been mentoring in Christ. He says this to Timothy, verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ. And remember is in the present tense. So you know what it means? Keep remembering. It doesn't mean remember him, you know, once a year, once in a while, or on Sundays. No. Continue to remember Jesus Christ. Look at this. He, He thinks this is always important. Risen from the dead. That means he's God. A descendant or the offspring of David. There it is again. He puts these two things together. Remember Jesus Christ. He could have stopped there. No. Risen from the dead. That elevates him. Lord. Offspring of David. Christ. Remember that one. And don't stop remembering him. As preached in my gospel. The gospel that I have been set apart to proclaim. Defend. And preach to the world. And then he says, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. Beloved, he's going to die not too long after this. He's going to be executed. And we don't have anything from the scriptures, but tradition says he was beheaded. For what? For stealing? For robbing? For cheating on his tack? Nope. For preaching the good news of God. And then I love this statement. But the word of God is not bound. I love that. I might be bound, but they can't stop the word of God from going out. It continues to infiltrate one area after another. continues to penetrate people's lives and hearts. And when they realize what kind of message they get a hold of, 
they can't stop but open their mouth and tell it to someone else. You can't stop the gospel of God. It is not bound. That's what he says. Well, beloved, we have communion today. You can think on those things. That's the end of that sermon. Here again, we come together at least once a month, okay? At least once a month to celebrate something. What? What do we come together to celebrate? What is this? We're going to celebrate Jesus Christ. Here we go again. Right? Because Paul says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three, you're familiar with it. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body. It is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper saying, this is the cup, is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so here we are again at the table, remembering, valuing, celebrating Jesus Christ and specifically his sacrifice made for sinners to set them right with God, to grant them eternal life, to make them his forever. Wow. So let's take some time to do that. And as we as the elements are passed, we just ask that you hold on to those and wait to the end. We'll partake together. And as that time is there, why don't you just take a moment and remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David.